Hey, y'all. It's Angela here. I just wanted to let you know that I had an awesome episode with Eric, my dear friend, and talking all about habit change. It's coming up next, but the audio is just a little bit funky. Nicole worked as much magic as she could. The content was so good. We really wanted you guys to hear it. So bear with us. Enjoy it. And um, we'll see you next week with even better, awesome audio. Welcome to Spark. I'm Angela Wagner. And I'm Eric Janagi. And together we're here as your hosts for a mix of happy hour style venting and results-based coaching. Spark is a judgment-free space where we'll chat about both the brilliant bits of life as well as the bits that are a little more sucky. With lightness, laughter, and the belief that there's no such thing as oversharing, we'll guide you in finding clear paths out of murky messes and toward discovering inspiration in everyday moments. This week, we have a very special guest, Dr. Eric Janagi, PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. He specializes in behavioral health and sports performance. He is here to help us understand how our habits are created, why it's so darn challenging to stick to good habits, and why we have a natural inclination to be negative. Eric, awesome. Welcome. You're finally here. I've been talking about you, and you've been helping me answer questions over email, and now... I've delivered on my promise. Here you are co-hosting. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this. I love what you're doing. Yeah, so much fun. So the listeners know a little bit about you. Um, well, first, why don't you give us a little info into kind of how you got into behavioral health and maybe why? Well, originally, um, after I finished my undergrad, I was studying sports management. I thought I was going to get into the business side of sports, but that just kind of lost its interest. Um, and one of my last classes at Kansas was a sports psychology class, and it just really intrigued me. Um, I just obviously sports are a big part of my life, but just the mental aspect of performance, and and so I found a graduate program in Southern California and got my master's in kinesiology with an emphasis in applied sports psychology. And then when I moved to Austin in 05, I was working in the golf profession, which is where I met John. And um, I had sent an email out to one of the professors at UT, and um, he was a sports psychologist, and I just wanted to meet with him to kind of see what he was doing. And we sat and talked, and he asked me to come back to school. And so, <laughs> so I was like, sure. And the program at Texas, it, it wasn't, its emphasis wasn't sports psychology by nature. It's a, it's a um, kinesiology and health education department. And so they had a behavioral health program of study. And then he just let me kind of create the sports performance emphasis on my own. So that I took psychology classes outside of the department um, to further my knowledge in that area. Oh, that's cool. So you kind of had like a, like you were the original, created your Yeah, own. I got to blaze my own trail. It was pretty cool. I love it. So going to John, so most of you know, but if you're a new listener, my husband is John. So that's how Eric and I know each other. And Eric and John used to teach golf together in Austin when John was 
living there pre-meeting me in Dallas. And uh, <laughs> and you were in our wedding and super fun dancing to Michael Jackson and all kinds of good things. <laughs> yes, that was a great wedding. That was a very fun wedding. We might have to post some wedding photos on the show notes. <laughs> I think we had like a dance-off and I think you and Colin were like pretty close to winning. Yeah, I think, yeah, Colin, Colin ripped some great moves. He did. He did a backflip, so he kind of outdid you. But you, yeah. were, you were right up there till the backflip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, so we've known each other for, I don't know, seven or eight years. Eight, nine, my husband's going to hate me, but we're having our seven-year anniversary. I never remember dates and years, and so he's always incredibly offended. But <laughs> I don't know, I would say eight or, eight or nine years since that we've known each other. Isn't that crazy? Time yes. flies. It's flying. It's flying. So, all right, we're going to just get into the good stuff. So, as you know, we always have a sucky moment of the week because, let's be real, as much as we know all this awesome stuff and how to be positive and how to live a happy life, you could have coaching, you could have a PhD in it, and we still each all have our sucky moments. So, and you are definitely going to prove this by giving us your sucky moment of the week. I love it. Here's our sucky scale, one being kind of sucky, five being super sucky, one, two, three, seriously, four, five. So Eric, what do you rate your sucky moment of the week as? It was a five for sure. Whoa. Okay, tell us about it. So like I said, I did my undergrad at the University of Kansas, which has a pretty renowned basketball program. But the basketball program also has kind of a reputation for underachieving in the NCAA tournament. And so despite having number one seeds in the tournament several times in the past few years, um, they keep getting beat by inferior opponents. (laughs) (laughs) And it's quite frustrating for me. So Kansas, you're a Jayhawk, right? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't. Before I met you, I don't, I mean, I'm sure I knew some Jayhawks, but I didn't know about it. And now I have like some neighbor friends that are Jayhawks and like, it's a thing. It's, it's kind of like the Aggie version. Yeah. Like how Aggies are in Texas. You guys have some serious pride up there. Some serious pride. And then that pride must come crashing down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so you, you're like pretty serious in your rating of a five. So give us, um, you have you obviously have a pretty good inspired action from this, I'm assuming. So give it to us. Yeah, I mean, you know, studying psychology as I've done for the past several years and, and just being very introspective and, and kind of always aware of what I'm doing, um, even though I was kind of immersed in this disappointment and this frustration for my basketball team losing, I'm was still conscious of the the absurdity of it. And so it just got me to thinking about, you know, how how I keep letting myself get so attached to the outcomes of a college basketball game. 
you know, such to the extent, you know, that, you know, it's extremely nervous during the games. And then, of course, when, when we lose, severely agitated. Uh, so, <laughs> but at the same time, right, you, you got to look at yourself and, and laugh uh, about these phenomena. So I think it's a pretty common, common experience for many that we just overattach ourselves to, to things, to outcomes. Yeah, for sure. I know sports is a big one. And it was always in my house, like with my dad, he still today is just like his emotions, like his mood are absolutely defined by whether or not his team won or lost, which my mom and I think is really funny, but he doesn't think it's funny. <laughs> Serious business. But I'm sure there's something that, you know, that, that we have, but to your point, it's something I've mentioned before on the podcast is sometimes even just me writing down what the sucky moment is and giving it a rating, I generally will take it down a level because I'm like, oh, just in saying it out loud and defining it as a sucky moment, I realize that it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, and the literature will support you there. I mean, just even labeling emotions can dampen emotions. Um, and then writing certainly has... Um, has powerful effects of just getting it out and kind of, like I just said, like, you know, when we're overly attached to these outcomes, well, this, the process of verbalizing it or labeling it or writing it down actually helps create this detachment. And when we can detach ourselves from things and kind of observe things from a distance, from an outsider's perspective, then, right, we start taking its power down and, and we can start looking at it a little bit more rationally, a little bit more objectively. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> right. I love it. Okay. So we're going to get into some more questions um, that I know you and I have talked at length over cocktails and pizza and all kinds of stuff. So this is a huge question, but maybe like a, you know, a shortened quicker response than probably what's in your brain. But in general, how would you say habits are, how are habits created? Because we know like it's hard to stick to habits, but we'll talk about that in a second. But how are they actually created? Well, the simplest way to, to think about how habits are created is repetition and reinforcement. So you do a behavior and there's an outcome. And there can be a positive outcome. So it makes you feel good. So it reinforces that behavior. Or you could possibly circumvent a negative outcome. So you could avoid experiencing a negative outcome. So, for example, procrastinating. Like my students have a test tomorrow. And they can procrastinate or they can go out drinking. And that removes the negative stress that they experience, the discomfort that they experience when they think about the test. <laughs> and so because it... Right, because it removes those negative feelings, the stress of the test, it gets reinforced because it was successful. And then you just do it over and over and over again. And then when it reaches the point of habit, then it just becomes automatic. Yeah, the behavior becomes automatic. So then procrastination becomes this habit in that example. So that was kind of one of those examples where it's like a bad habit being reinforced. But how would you say... A good habit's mm -hmm. reinforced. Well, the, the, the same way. I mean, you perform the, the good habit. Like you go and 
and you exercise. And then after you exercise, you think, wow, that, that was a great job. Way to do that. Way to stick to your goal. Make it at the gym. And, and then naturally, usually post-exercise, there there's um, um, emotional changes. There's um, some positive affect that's created <laughs> at the completion, not necessarily during. Um, but post-exercise, your mood tends to elevate. And so that, that shift there, right, essentially – reinforce reinforces in your brain okay this was this was a positive behavior and then you do it again and then you get that outcome and then again just repetition that's reinforced and you do it over and over and, and there's great variance with how many times i mean some things you can do one time and become a habit some things take hundreds and hundreds of trials before they get laid down as a habit just it just depends so why is it that they say, well, and it's funny, so I've always heard that it takes 21 times yeah. or 21 days to create a habit, but then someone was telling me that recent studies show it's something more like in the 80s. But those studies, the variance is from 3 to 265. Like if they, if you look at the literature, there's such a broad variance, but we, we like neat, clean stories, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, <laughs> psychology is a very and, and behavior is a very complex um, subject matter, and, and and that's why it's why it's difficult. And you know, sometimes it's a struggle to 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 read some of the just you know some of the very oversimplified articles that you're going to find in like a Shape magazine or Vogue magazine or Men's Health. Um, where they're just trying to oversimplify. Are you saying that I got my information from Shape? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but I'm sure that there's I know. people out there listening that are like, wait, I, mean, I don't know, men's health, whatever. But <laughs> yeah, just I mean, sometimes they oversimplify complex problems. And, and just by nature, that's, I mean, the irony is that's what I, why we have habits is because it's our own innate way of simplifying processes. And if we think about it from an evolutionary perspective, right, it's to conserve energy. Right. We got to be able to learn how to do these things and which things we need to do and then be able to do them as efficiently as possible. So, that, you know, habits are good. There's utility in habits. But yeah, the downside is, is that we can also create habits that aren't so good for us. And 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 the research shows in the neurobiology shows that even when we do maladaptive behavior, so like going out and, and drinking or, or procrastinating, things that we know are you know, contraindicated to our goals, if they make us feel good, if we feel successful after doing those things, they essentially get reinforced. So even though the behavior is not the behavior that we really want to do over and over again, it gets reinforced because it's actually because it successfully reaches its goal. So here's a question I get a lot with the yoga studio and people will say, I mean it's it's almost never that someone comes into yoga and regrets coming to class, right? Like I mean in in my like 15 years of practice, I can maybe on one hand and that's just cuz I was like severely injured or you know whatever, but in general even if I can only do a little bit of the practice, I still feel better. And so 
why is it that I still fight going? Well, it's a complex question. Um, there, there, <laughs> well, one that one one thing is that there's competing goals, right? There's many things in your life that that lead to positive outcomes. So then it kind of becomes, you know, this competition between positive outcomes, right? Because essentially, too, like you know, going home and just sitting on the couch is rewarding for people, right? So then you got the competition. It's like, okay, I got, I know yoga would make me feel good, but I know going home and sitting on the couch would make me feel good. And so that's what, before the, the habit is, is laid down so deeply, that's where, I, that's where the, that's where the challenge becomes, you know, before whatever number of days or times, how many times you got to go to yoga before it's just like, okay, I can go to yoga every Wednesday night. However many numbers is irrelevant until that becomes so routine that you don't even question it. You just get in your car and you drive straight to yoga sport Dallas. Would you say that it's better when you're starting to create a habit, again, like seriously, like I want to do this, that you should do it every day until you feel like it is part of your routine? Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be every day. So habit behaviors are cued. So habits are essentially like a sequence of behaviors, a sequence of actions where the first action essentially cues the second action and the second action cues the third action, right? So somebody, you know, develops the habit where if they go to yoga every Wednesday night, right, and they leave their office and it's Wednesday and they're, you know, they know that they get in their car and because it's Wednesday, they know they turn right out of their parking lot instead of left, which would take them home. And so that just kind of becomes automatic, right? They turn left and then they turn and then they walk up the stairs and then they get in, they find themselves into yoga and then they do the practice and then they feel great and that reinforces them. So one thing that we found that, that helps in reinforcing habits is, you know, doing them in the same kind of context or you're having reminder type cues. So time can be a cue. So they would say, you know, if you want to build a habit for working out, that you should work out at the same time that on the days that you're mm. going to work out. Because the very nature of the time serves as a cue of, oh, this is the next indicated behavior, right? Like me, you know, getting up in the morning, like I will walk straight, like all the lights can be off in my house and I can walk straight to the coffee pot, right? I've got to cut that. I know exactly <laughs> where the coffee maker is. So... But, you know, it's just kind of those things. And you go through. So contextual factors can serve as cues. Emotions can serve as cues. And that's why, you know, comfort eating, right? The distressful emotions can serve as a cue to, okay, the solution to this is going to the freezer and grabbing the ice cream that we know releases all this kind of dopamine almost instantaneously, and then the stress goes away for the interim. Yeah. So is that, again, I know I'm asking these, like, what seem like very simple questions, and I want you to give this very simple answer, and it's very complex. But in general, is it that the things that aren't as good for us seem to be easier to do? Is it because there's, like, this quick fix and the things that aren't good for us are like an immediate, um, 
like they immediately satiate us, whereas a lot of times. Well, the yes, the reward is more immediate. So, yes, I mean, things with the reward is very powerful and immediate. You're going to create a habit easily. So, if, if we talk about um, motivation, so my students have to take a test on motivation tomorrow. And so, there's intrinsic motivation. <laughs> were things so things that are intrinsically motivating are things that are the joy is just in the doing right so the very just act of doing the behavior is joyful so Mm -hmm. right some people love yoga to the extent that just going through and and changing the poses and and breathing and, and feeling their bodies produces joy Right, they're not doing yoga as a means to an end, like obtaining a certain figure or a certain status or checking some goal off the list. They're doing yoga just because the very act of yoga is rewarding for them. Well, there there are very few things that just the joy is in the doing. Most of our life is spent doing things that serve as a means to an end. Right, most mm. people are exercising because they want to look a certain way or obtain a a certain health outcome. And we know exercise, especially the more intense that it gets, the doing is anything but enjoyable. (laughs) You do high intensity training or, you know, some strenuous resistance training. There's negative affect. There's pain involved. So, so that behavior isn't rewarding. And it, sometimes it becomes hard to be like, oh, yeah, but it's going to lead to something rewarding. Like, yeah, in six months when I get to look in front of the mirror and, or when I get to put my wedding dress on and fit into it, you know, it's so far removed. The reward is so far removed from the behavior that it's not yeah. reinforcing it. And so it's like, where's the reinforcement? Because if we need repetition and reinforcement, but now we're not getting the reinforcement to do it the second rep, or the third rep or the fourth, however long it takes, then obviously it's much harder to make that habit. Okay, so then how do we do it? Give us well, well, give us the goods. So the beautiful thing about being human is that we can create meaning for anything. So we have to ascribe the meaning to the to the behaviors that are less than enjoyable, that are difficult, that challenge us. We have to, right? So you have to, you know, you have to reward yourself and you have to buy into it. Like you have to believe like, yeah, you just did something that's very positive for you. This is, this is successful. Yeah. We often talk about like uh, your purpose or your why, like really tapping into that. Yeah. The why is huge. I mean, that's the core cornerstone in my teaching of motivation is, if the why is big enough, you'll do anything. Yeah. Where's the value in it? And now another thing too that makes habits well so stress. I'm sure some of some of your listeners experience some stress in their day to day lives. Well, what we know about stress is that stress actually can inhibit you from creating from doing behaviors that you've set out to do goals that you have because or changing 
to do new behaviors because under stress, your body wants to just enact the habits it already knows, that it already has. Mm. So, and it kind of shuts off our awareness, our, our executive control, our ability to, to regulate our behavior. And so early on in the, in, the, in the good habit development, you know, if we're experiencing stress, that can, that can become a challenge because the stress kind of shuts off our awareness and our ability to control our actions and then just says, no, just do what we've been doing and just do, do what we know works. And, you know, then you just go back to eating how you normally eat or, you know, being sedentary or, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to change. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot because we're going through this kitchen remodel, which our, my listeners know all about, and living at my parents and my in-laws and everything. I'm just, I mean, like every night, like we're drinking <laughs> wine and I'm, <laughs> the other day I was like, I should, you know, John was like, do you want a bowl of berries? I'm like, no, my mom bought me a caramello. Like I want my caramello, <laughs> you know? And we weren't like, we had gotten off like eating the massive amounts of candy and everything it had been a while. We were in really good habits and then it's just been stressful. So we're, well, he's doing probably better than I am, although he has had quite a bit of Heineken, but <laughs> and I got to get, I've been drinking my, like I, I did the same thing. Like how I just didn't realize how many more calories wine has than beer, like light beer. And it's just like, Oh, this was a bad habit. This is a bad choice to become a wine fanatic. Oh man. But it's so good. Yum. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, but that's helpful. Um, okay. And then there's one other question that I have, and we were just talking about this in my teacher training that have like, as humans, we have this like natural, I call, always call it a negativity bias, but like the way I describe it for myself is, I mean, and this sounds so dramatic, but in general, I say when I wake up, I'm I wake up in a place of negativity. So like the first thing I think of when I wake up is like, I am so tired and oh my gosh, I don't want to get up and this and that. And it's like, it, I'm a fairly happy person. I have a great life. I love my job. I mean like all these things. So it's like, oh my gosh, why do I wake up so negative? And then we talked about, you know, how, cause we're doing the complaint free world program. I don't know if you know about it, but you essentially it's a, it, it's an, a program of awareness of how much you complain. So every time you complain, you have to move a bracelet from one wrist to the other. And so it just gives you this, this clue and this awareness around it. And so we're working on that. And it was just so interesting because we were talking about how, when you stop complaining, like you realize like you have your people that just love to complain. Or if like you post on, if you post something negative on Facebook, you will get like 3 million likes. You post like something inspirational. People are like, eh, you know? Yeah. Well, the evolutionary psych people are, they're going to say, right, our whole negativity bias is for survival and that negative emotions are three times more powerful than positive emotions. It takes much longer to recover from setbacks than from joys. So if you you'd imagine kind of you have like this set point and if you have something that brings you down below that set, set point, it takes much longer to get you back up. Whereas if you experience a joy, you win the lottery, you find lottery winners, right, return back to their their set point of happiness much more quickly than someone that's oh, yeah, had that's a so trauma. Crazy. Okay, so why? <laughs> Is that just like where, what we're born with? Well, from a survival standpoint, so again, if we think about, so emotions uh, are, com- are a component of memory. So the feelings that we 
that are elicited when we engage in behaviors and have outcomes, right, help us remember the behaviors and learn what behaviors produce what outcomes as such. And so it's more important that you remember things that led to negative outcomes. It's, it's more important to learn those lessons if survival is, is the outcome that we're <laughs> concerned with um, than it is to learn, like, you know, where yeah. you had fun, you know, what thing you did that produced joy and gratitude. So we can use that. Um, but then a lot of it is, you know, so even if that's the case, and then right now it's just perpetuated culturally because, you know, the news is weighted that way. And it just, it just starts snowballing and it just becomes a way, it just becomes a way of yeah, being. Yeah, for sure. And, and it essentially just becomes a habit. So thinking styles, mindsets, beliefs, they're, they're, they're essentially just habits. Um, explanatory, how we explain life's events. Those are habits. So the beauty is we can change them. So the beauty is that the brain is completely capable of change from beginning to end. So that's the beauty, but it takes, like you like you said, moving a bracelet over, creating this awareness first, and then just the discipline to catch yourself and, and to to let that negativity go and and turn your attention towards things that you're grateful for, things that are going well in your life, things that are good. And over time, you know, as you repeat that. You can create that habit. I love what you said when you were talking about how you can change it, like you can make the decision and that you can train your mind because we talk about this a ton in yoga and certainly in meditation and mindfulness training. And so many people just think like, especially with meditation, like I should just be able to do this. Like it seems easy because you're just, you know, I'm just sitting there. Well, anyone could just sit there, but it's not really right. We all know that it's like much more complex than that. But you wouldn't expect to go into, you know, the gym or, you know, like you wouldn't expect someone to go into a, a job mm-hmm. that has, has no training or whatever it was and just be able to do it. So it's like, it's interesting how with like, you know, our emotional intelligence and our mindfulness, how we just, why do we expect ourselves to do these things naturally with, with no training, you know? Yeah, well, that's just. The, the beliefs that we have about the ease of, of certain behaviors and, and and you just create a false belief on you know what it takes to actually be able to engage in that behavior and, and yeah just lots of preconceived notions and expectations about about things um, biases that have been developed and created over, Years yeah, and, years. and we we are like constantly bombarded with images of or in stories like on social media of people that are in the place we want to be in, whether it's like physical, emotional, mental, and we mm-hmm. don't see the struggle, we don't see what they've been through to get there, and right. you can't see mental work. You know, I think that's another thing. Like you you can physically see someone in the gym every day busting their butt. You can see someone you know like make different decisions and bringing the healthy food every mm-hmm. day and not eating you know whatever the cupcakes that somebody brings for work. But you 
you can't see, I mean, you're not watching them meditate. You're not watching them do the memory exercises. You're not, you know, all that stuff that you have to do to really get to this, these positive places mentally, like you never see that. Yeah. And that's the challenge with any kind of cognitive change is that, and, and I deal with this with athletes is that again, we, when we talk about the reward, the reinforcement and, and how far away it is. And, you know, even with the negative, you know, sometimes the negative is reinforced because, you know, there is some good in, in getting it off your chest. But what you don't see, and you don't necessarily see the negative ramifications of, of developing a long-term habit of being biased in the direction where you tend to see more of what's wrong than you do mm-hmm. what's right. In the interim, you're like, okay, yeah, I had this cranky attitude today or whatever. You know, you just see it in that microcosm, that small aspect of your life, and you're like, oh, there's, you know, it really didn't change anything. It wasn't, didn't make things worse, or, you know, I wasn't, there weren't any consequences for it. Sure. Immediately. But then, and not to, to make light of depression, but, you know, two years, five years, with this repetitive kind of bias towards the negative, that's where you Absolutely. find yourself, right? You find yourself in the in this habit of mm-hmm. suffering. And it, and it, it very much is created by how you perceive the world and how you think about it and where you turn your attention. I mean, we can very easily turn our attention to what's right about ourselves and and the progress that we're making and the things that we're doing, but we can very easily turn our attention to our inadequacies, our failures, our shortcomings. So it's, the struggle is, is that they're both easy, and but neither one of them necessarily produce like powerful outcomes mm-hmm. immediately. So, you know, I, I can... I try to train my athletes to have a positive attitude, but you know, that doesn't necessarily like the golfers, it doesn't make them hit a golf shot immediately, a great golf shot immediately or consistently enough to where it's like, Oh yep, that's exactly, you know, that's, that's it. That's what I should do. And I should keep doing this. Um, but we know long term, if you're more positive, if you can have a positive attitude, it's going to, it's going to increase your odds for experiencing more joy and having more success. So uh, some of the literature now, on the happiness from positive psychology, you know, is talking about the need to just create a happy mindset from the get-go. That if you wait to be happy after you achieve some some goal, what actually happens is you get to that goal and then you just shift to another goal. And you never really experience that happiness because now you just shift the standard. So it's kind of like, you know, Going back to your point, not to keep talking endlessly, but you know, w- when we when we view some behaviors as not that as shouldn't be challenging, that should be easy. Right? We're, we're essentially just creating this false standard, and so then when we can't achieve even something that we feel is easy, right, then the consequences are that much worse, right? As far as you know, how we perceive ourselves and our yeah, confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that makes sense. And you um, sent me a pretty great TED Talk. So I'll post that on the show notes. That's like a 10-minute talk about positive mindset and how we have a negative negativity bias. I thought it was very interesting. So yeah, that's a good one. And then there's another one by Sean Aker um, on the positive. I can send you that talks. What I just spoke to is, is what he talks about in that TED talk is how we got to put the happy, happy people are successful, but it's just, you got to choose to be happy and then work. If you wait to be happy 
after you're successful, it's too late. Yes, that is so true, though. You're always chasing something. I found that, too, because it's like it, nothing ever feels good enough then. So, yeah. And hap- it's, happiness really yeah. is, is a decision, I I think. Yeah. Right. Oh, my gosh. So much good stuff. We could keep talking for hours, but it's late and you and I wake up early. So we're going to uh, <laughs> we're going to wrap this up. Um, I'm going to finish with a shout out. My shout out this week goes to good friends and good um especially old friends. It's so much fun to um, have you on the podcast and kind of see like where we've all gone and see each other grow. And it's just so much fun. So thank you for being here and uh, enlightening us with your knowledge. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I enjoy it. As always, our conversations are, are very stimulating for me. So and these things, I think we're both passionate about, you know, helping people flourish rather than flounder. Yes, and we are both very like real yeah, and we go exactly. through all the same stuff. So <laughs> we're, we're not these like enlightened, amazing coaches that are like, we totally get it. Like, we don't know why you guys are suffering down there. Cause yeah, that's not us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we didn't like, since we had kind of a special episode, we didn't do the, the ask coach a wags. But if you guys have any questions for me or for Eric, Send them into podcast at AngelaWagnerCoaching.com and let us know and we'll feature you. And if we get enough questions for Eric, we'll just have to have him back on. So thanks again, Eric, for being here. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of Spark. If you have a few extra minutes, please do an act of kindness and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. You can find the show notes and blog posts at AngelaWagnerCoaching.com and Eric's website at PhenomPerformance.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Coach A. Wags. Remember this week to take the time to give thanks, raise a glass, and discover what it is that sparks you.